Welcome to Bitcoin with Jake. Today we're speaking with Eric Yates. Welcome, Eric. What's up, Jake? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very keen to get into this. I've, I've done my homework and I finished your book last night. So um, what an awesome journey that is. For, for the listeners out there, could you give us a brief update as to, um, or an overview, shall we say, of the projects you're involved in at the moment, and of course, introduce your book. And what we're going to do today is dive into a bit of your background and understand what brought you to today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I published the book back in June, and then I'll, I'll save a lot of that for discussion on the background. But what I'm involved in right now is I've, I've spent a lot of time over the past, you know, six, eight months just figuring out what I wanted to do in this industry. And, you know, the book really helped me form a strong industry thesis for where I think things are going and, you know, how I can add value. And, um, and, uh, you know, there, there, there's a lot of different things I'm interested in. I'm interested in, you know, the media side of this industry as well as like, you know, building a business that's, you know, adding value in a much more um, tangible way. And um, so that's going to be more on the financial side because that's my background and it's going to be in asset management. And I'm currently under discussions to form a partnership around that. And nothing I can speak in too much detail about yet, but it's, uh, it's definitely to help people manage their Bitcoin. Cool. Um, and so... We can get into, uh, I guess, like the future towards the end of the conversation. Um, cool. What I'd love to learn about is, you know, so if, you're, if finance was your background, is that what you studied at university? And going back even before then, um, someone who's, who's studied or, or worked in the finance industry obviously had some interest in business prior to that. Like, what was it like growing up for you? Was that something that, you know, your parents influenced you into or uh, it just came naturally? Or what was that process like? Cool. Yeah. I've, I've never spoken about this on a podcast yet. So um, right. I'm, I'm, I'm excited cool. to talk about this. Uh, I'd say this is one of the biggest differentiators between me and most people I kind of meet who go into the areas that I've gone into. Um, when, when I was a little kid growing up, I was kind of a shithead. I, um, I, I didn't work very hard. I, you know, I, I worked hard at things I cared about, but that definitely wasn't school. And um, so, you know, when I was younger, I, you know, I liked sports and when I hit puberty, I liked girls and mm. it was a lot of stuff around that when I was younger. I think I, I graduated high school with, um, with a pretty low GPA. I think it was like a 2.8 or something like that because I just never really spent time in school. It was something that never really interested me all that much. And um, I think with, you know, what drew me into finance and all of that, it was, uh, it wasn't anything immediate. So it's kind of funny. I think that <clears throat> so my, my dad was a doctor and, you know, he wanted me to be a doctor pretty badly. And I, you know, I, I never really put thought into what my career is going to be. And then it was around like my junior high school. I was like, ah, oh, crap, you know, I got to start thinking about college and things like that. And, um, and I, <laughs> I did something I didn't really want to think about given my work ethic in school. And, um, I started, uh, I started thinking about what I really wanted to do. And just kind of out the gate, being a doctor was never something that was very appealing to me. So I kind of wrote that off very quickly. And I was like, I don't, I don't really know what I want to do. But I just kind of started at, you know, I started on the baseline. And I was like, okay, well, let's, let's start thinking about what, what I might be good at. And then it was around my senior year, I, I started taking like personality tests, just trying to figure it out. And, um, you know, really what kind of like sparked my ambition and made me want to grow up a bit and start actually pursuing something of purpose in life was, uh, it all started, I had this lacrosse coach and, um, and his name was Don Knobloch and he impacted me in a really big way. We were 
on this trip down in Florida and it was this traveling tournament. We won our state championship. So we went down to Florida for like the national championship and me and the whole team were down there. And I just happened to know this girl from like middle school who lived in Tampa Bay, Florida. And we went out partying with her and her friends one night before our games. And then the next morning we, uh, you know, woke up late me and the guy I was staying with and we showed up late to our first game. So <laughs> classic. Yeah. So he, he sat us on, he, you know, said, you guys can't play in this game. And, uh, and that hurt because this was a pretty big deal. This was one of the biggest tournaments that I went to. It was a very, very competitive tournament. And, um, and then at the end of the game, he had all the parents and all the kids and he sits us all down and he just chewed my ass in front of everybody and told me how much, you know, shithead I was. Or, can I curse on this? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, sure. cool. Okay. Um, so yeah, he, he, he chewed me pretty hard. And, uh, and that was like the real first wake up call for me. And, um, and I, and, you know, I came back from that trip and I was like, you know what, he's dead right. And, uh, you know, what is it that you want to do? And, and I started thinking about a lot of that stuff more and more. And then I got a lot more ambitious and I started putting together a plan of, you know, the things I'm genuinely interested in. And it was around that same time, my senior year, um, I found the right, book so context, and, uh, senior year is 18, roughly. Yeah. 18. Yeah. Yeah, cool. yeah. Yeah. Um, I found the book capitalism and freedom by Milton Friedman. And that really got me hooked. I think, um, you know, just in terms of, I, I, it's hard for me to explain really what it was or anything, but I know that I, I got interested in economics pretty early. And then I was taking personality tests and everything that was coming back for my type of personality was always, um, you know, like investment banking or management consulting type career. So that's just where I started. And I went off to college and, you know, I came up with a plan. I was like, okay, I, I want to work in the private equity industry. And I was much more, um, you know, I was younger, I was much more naive back then. And my goals were very different from what they ultimately evolved to. But, you know, back then it was kind of, the idea was that it's a competitive industry. It's uh, if you're going into the business world, then getting into competitive finance is probably the best way to cut your teeth. Um, if you work for a private equity fund, then you're the guy who writes the check of the company, which means, you know, the buck stops at you. You're the, you're the last guy in charge. Nobody else is in charge except for the guy who writes a check. And, uh, and that's something that I wanted to be a part of when you're, when you're at the highest level, you're the capital allocator and you make all the highest level decisions and you think in, you know, broad strategy. And if you can get into private equity, then you can do that at a pretty young age. And I think that that sets you up really well for the business world. So, you know, from that, those, those were some of my good motivations. <laughs> and then back then the other motivations were I wanted to make a bunch of money. And, um, and, and that was, um, yeah. And, um, you know, as, as you get older and as you start realizing, um, you know, how world works and what makes you happy and you grow and you mature a bit more, I think that that changed pretty significantly for me. And, uh, before I even graduated college, um, but nonetheless, I saw it as like a really good place to start out my career. And, you know, so starting my freshman year, I was studying, uh, I double majored in finance and economics and I, you know, kind of flipped the switch. So like given my past when I was in high school, my parents were like very concerned whether or not I was, you know, going to drop out of college or something. And then, um, and I flipped the switch and I graduated with like a three, nine and, uh, you know, my freshman year is probably my hardest because I just really didn't know how to study very well going into college. And it was something that was pretty unfamiliar to me and doing that in like a more rigorous manner. So I, I started to, uh, you know, I got like a 3.4 GPA. I remember my freshman year, that was probably my first semester. And, um, and I think that that was the hardest I'd worked in, um, out of any of the semesters in college, 
But once you figure out how to study and you do it efficiently and you learn how to do it right, then I was like, okay, this, this college stuff isn't all that hard. But I remember freshman year, I was kind of like, wow, can I actually even pull off like a 4.0? I don't really know. Uh, but then I, then I pulled it off. And then after that, um, you know, I, I was able to get involved in a lot of other things to make my resume pretty competitive for this job market. And, uh, and, you know, and that, that was a, that was definitely a grind. The school I was coming out of was like non-target for a lot of the interviews I was doing. And, um, but, you know, I, I did a lot of networking on my own. And, uh, and I think that that was, I, in hindsight, I, I'm really glad that I started off at a non-target school because it forced me to learn how to network really well at a young age and how to grind and how to hustle. And, um, and a lot of kids, if you go to, you know, an Ivy League, then all these firms are typically recruiting on campus. So there's not much you actually have to do to get in front of people. And so that, that was one of the skills that I think was really helpful developing at a younger age was just learning how to hustle your way into things. And, um, and yeah, so, you know, I, I, I did a bunch of interviews and I didn't get the top jobs I wanted, um, but I got like my number three job out of college, which was good enough for me. And then I like, okay, let's keep grinding. And then I got into the field and I learned a lot about business. I learned a lot about finance. Um, I learned about how companies operate, what makes them valuable, where they run into different problems. Um, and I started off at a management consulting firm doing that. We were kind of in a niche area though, because um, we were doing corporate restructuring. So we had like the operational strategic business side of things we would do. Um, but we also had kind of like an investment banking tilt to a lot of what we did when you, when I say corporate restructuring, that means we specialize in, you know, helping companies that are either like going into bankruptcy or they're undergoing a significant challenge. And when you're in those scenarios, there's usually a major financial implication involved. So you can't just have like a typical management consulting firm. They're dealing with like a healthy company. And, you know, if, um, if, uh, you know, Kellogg goes and hires a management consulting firm like we want to launch a new product help us give us a strategy or something that's like a pure strategy business type project that you work on in our situation it's like this company might be going under we hire you guys to step in and take control and um, and that means you know not only understanding how the business operates and how to turn that around but also okay well we need to figure out what assets you guys have and what we need to sell to like get the financial situation where we need it to be etc things like that um, so I got really good at like cutting my teeth in challenging business environments, which is that job was the job that I wanted to tee myself up to get into private equity because you, um, in private equity, it's looking at companies like that a lot. There's a lot of different areas of private equity, but a large proportion of it's that in the area I was interested in, uh, specialized in that. So that was a good way for me to get the skills. And then, um, and you know, the, those jobs were pretty long hours and, um, and you know, so throughout that process in my first firm, I, uh, you know, I was setting myself up for private equity and I was, that was like my end goal this whole time. And, uh, you know, there, there was a lot of like work after hours, teaching myself different things that I need to get, to get into the industry. And then I, after working there for about two and a half years, I started going out and campaigning to get, uh, you know, a job at a private equity fund and reaching out to different people I know in the industry and talking to recruiters, things like that. And then I got a job at one based out of Denver where I am and, um, and that, and it was perfect. And it was, it was a lot of things that I liked and wanted and I accepted it. And then that was kind of my end goal. Right. So when I was in college, that was the goal since like freshman year. So I was like, okay, like you finally did it. Um, now you just got to get really good at this job. And like back then my plan was, um, my plan was to work at the fund for a couple of years and then go back to grad school because that's kind of the traditional path. You go back to grad school, you meet a bunch of other people who have MBAs, but I wanted to get an MBA and a JD. You can do like three-year programs at some schools and you can get both. Um, 
just because having a legal knowledge is I think really important in any area of business as well. If you want to play the game, then you got to know the rules. And, and that was kind of my rationale. And, you know, I was, I was trying to target all the top schools and I was pretty ambitious about that. And, uh, it was right around the time that I was thinking about making that jump. So I'd been at the private equity firm, you know, for a little over a year at this point. And, uh, and I was like, okay, it's time to like start preparing yourself for grad school and going, taking all the tests and doing all the interviews and stuff. And I was, I was having a pretty hard time with that just because everything, um, you know, they try to dig in deeply and figure out, you know, who you are and what your long-term goals are. And, you know, back then it was just pretty standard. I was like, I want to work in the private equity industry. I want to be a capital allocator. Um, and, and it was kind of that process made me realize, like, I don't know if I really even want to go to grad school. Um, it, it seemed just so unappealing to me, but I was like, oh, it's part of this plan that you put together. You need to go do that. And, um, and then, you know, I was working at the fund at the same time and I was working pretty long hours. And, uh, and I went through this whole, um, you know, I was working on these deals for like six months. Um, I hadn't seen a lot of people, a lot of my friends, I wasn't socializing very much. It's pretty much just nonstop work. I was gaining weight. And, um, and then some of the, once we finished those deals, some, some of them fell through and that, that was something that was pretty disappointing to me. And once that happened, I got a little bit more free time to start to think to myself and I was like, okay, like this is taking a big cost on your life. Um, is this all worth it? And, and that's what started to open my mind up to other options. Um, and then, you know, in the background, I had my Bitcoin journey going on. So mm. the way that I kind of looked at everything throughout this whole period was like, economics is kind of my hobby. Um, but, you know, finance is my profession. It was just like economics was something I was always drawn to. So like when I had free time, I was reading about that. And, um, and eventually when I got led to Bitcoin, I initially just wrote it off based on my financial education. Um, I, during this period, I got like a CFA charter. And like when you're taught to like think in, in those types of frameworks, it's very hard to fit Bitcoin into all that. And um, so I rejected it. I said it was a speculative asset with no fundamental value. And then a good friend of mine who I worked with, he kind of kept pushing it on me. He's like, and he, he had like a tech background when I was in my first company. And he was just like, look, dude, this thing's really cool. It does all this cool stuff. It's this new technology. And he was kind of pitching it from like the technology angle. And, and that didn't resonate well with me. I was just like, look, man, it could be a really cool technology, but if I can't measure its value, then I don't know how I could ever invest in it. Um, I don't know what it's worth. And, um, but he kind of kept harping on it and like pushing on me. I was like, all right, buddy, I'll take a look at it. And then I can't remember exactly what it was, but I came across some sort of, um, it was like a forum post or something. And, it, you know, it was getting in, this was like when I was first really actually taking, you know, a few hours to like really dig into it. And, um, and it was talking about how it's like an alternative to like central banking in some form. And then that got the gears turning. And that got me really interested because I was well aware of all the issues with central banking and my financial thesis up until this point was, um, this is how the world works. And there's, that's just how it works. And it's like, <clears throat> either like, you know, you participate in the economy, the way it's structured, or, you know, what else are you going to do? And, um, and I'd spent a decent amount of time. And before that point, kind of thinking through, uh, you know, where's this all going to end? How's it going to go wrong? And there was a point when I was looking at, you know, like the Japanese equity markets and they were, um, you know, they, they were effectively nationalizing them. The government took it so far. I mean, you think about what happened during the pandemic, the Fed didn't just buy, you know, treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. They also started buying corporate debt, municipal debt. They started opening up all these international swap lines. Like they got into all these other asset classes that were outside of their mandate because it was a crisis and you can pretty much do anything you want during a crisis. So Japan was doing that to the extent that they were buying their equity markets and they're doing that in a very material way. I think, and I could be totally wrong about this number, but it, it was, my memory was that it was around like 25% 
of if you looked at like their primary um, uh, Nikkei index, I think it was like 25% of it was effectively nationalized by the amount of like central bank purchases back then. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. Like this has to end some way. And I was thinking about trying to find ways to like short different Japanese equities. And, um, and I, you know, ultimately where I got to back then was I, I don't really know. I don't really know how it ends. And I, in fact, didn't end up taking any sort of position on that. And, um, and it was soon after that, that I started digging more into Bitcoin and seeing that it was an alternative to central banking. And that's when I got really interested. So I started reading a lot more about it. And I was kind of, you know, early 2016, early 2017. And then, you know, the run up and everything started happening. And, um, and I was reading into, you know, all the other ones. And I was like, okay, well, what's this Ethereum thing? And what does it do? And, uh, you know, what's, a, what's the difference between these consensus algorithms? Oh, well, if this one's different than Bitcoin, then it must be an improvement on it. It must be some sort of innovation people are working off. I mean, you go, and I went through like, you know, all those details and, um, and I, I wasn't like a hardcore Bitcoiner out the gate. There's a lot of things that made me think, um, you know, these other ones could serve a purpose a lot better. And um, I think it, it wasn't until like 2018, 2019, when I got a bit deeper, that I started to, you know, realize how frothy all of that was. And it's just marketing tactics. And I just wasn't deep enough to really understand it initially. And, um, and that brought me back to like the roots of, you know, the, the general purpose of what's going on. And um, so bring that all back to when I was at the private equity fund and I was considering alternatives. I had this building in my mind the whole time. And, um, and I think that it was, it was something that always seemed crazy to me. I was always like, well, I can be an investor in this stuff, but you know, jumping into the industry and like working in the industry, that would just be, you know, that's a kind of crazy thing. I've already invested so much into my career at this point. I put together this whole plan. I can't just like throw that all away. And then, um, but once I, I got like a little bit more personal at a certain point, um, when I was, I, I kind of like asked myself, I was like, you're making all these sacrifices in life for this career. Like, is this really what you want in grad school? Doesn't seem that appealing. Like yeah, if I look, you know, 10, 20 years into the future and I stay in this, um, and I stay in this career path, you know, where am I going to be? And, and I was at the point where, you know, I was in my mid twenties. So like I got to the point where I wanted and my future had a lot more definable features to it so i could really see into the future and say like okay it's going to be x amount of years till i get to this role then i look at the guys i know who are in that role and then i see like what their lifestyles are like and i'm like okay x amount of years until this role this role okay here's the point where you'll be free enough to you know own your own time do what you want and make the own decisions that you want and that's a pretty far ways down the road um and that was that was one aspect of it the other thing too is that what you typically see in the industry is one thing that I realized pretty quickly is if you're, when you're playing other people's games, um, then you inevitably spend in, in, in like an inordinate amount of time trying to rise their hierarchies. And at the end of the day, that made just entrepreneurship so much more appealing to me. And I didn't really know it yet, but I started to realize how hard it's going to be to actually grind your way, particularly in these ultra competitive industries of people who are very, you know, well-established and their whole game is to have as many people that they can have working for them without, you know, giving up ownership. And, and it's also an industry where your exit options of like going and starting your own thing it's a lot harder because it's all resume based. So you have to grind it for these guys in the first place, if you're even going to get there in the first place. Um, so all those things that I was thinking through, I was just like, that's not super appealing. Um, and then like the idea came into my head and I was kind of like, well, you could do something in Bitcoin. Um, and that was one big piece of it. And that got me thinking about that. And then on the other side of things, it was more like at a personal level. Um, I was thinking about what I was really good at and I was like, um, 
you know, one of my, one of my really good friends used to always say this, you, you can't compete against people who love what they're doing. And, and that's, I, that really always resonated with me because, you know, I realized that I didn't love what I was doing and I wasn't spending all my free time thinking about it. I was thinking about a lot of other stuff. And I asked myself, like, what, what am I good at? Um, and the framework of thinking was like, what am I good at? What do I enjoy? Um, cause oftentimes there's a bit of a distinction between those two things. And then, um, you know, what does the world need? And with the, what I'm going to, what I enjoyed, I was like, well, one thing that kind of differentiated me from this industry, uh, and I, I talked about this a little bit in the McCormack interview, but they, um, uh, you know, a lot of people in this area are very analytical. They're very like shrewd businessmen and very valuable skill, really good for that area. And that was something I could do and I was capable at and I could, you know, do all that. And that's something I actually really enjoyed. But there was a whole other side of like, I like, you know, having... I like having frank discussions. I like being open and honest with people. I like being more laid back. I like having a sense of humor. There wasn't enough humanity in this industry for me. And, and I always wanted to have some sort of like media side to what I was doing. And I had no idea what that really even was. Um, but I wanted to educate people. I wanted to make jokes. I wanted to uh, tell my story to the world. And, you know, it, it was funny, like the very first idea that popped into my head when I was thinking through some of that stuff was like, well, you could like be like a comedian or something. And, um, and I thought that'd be cool. I was like, yeah, but you know, that, that sounds like a hilarious lifestyle. Like a Bitcoin or, comedian. Like a Bitcoin comedian. And like, and that wasn't even <laughs> quite there yet. You know, this was like at the very beginning. That will appear at some point for sure. <laughs> um, but, you know, that was one of the first things I was thinking through. And, and then, you know, as I thought about it more, I was kind of like, okay, well, um, I don't know if I'd want to be like completely that because I care a lot about, you know, being serious and, you know, really actually educating people and getting deep into doing analysis, things like that, really understanding how things work. So I had like, I started thinking from first principles about all these different things um, from that framework of, you know, what I'm good at, what I enjoy and uh, what the world needs. And where I ultimately got to before I decided like, okay, I'm going to quit my job was, um, I had that framework in my mind and I was at a point in my career where, you know, it's a pretty demanding job. And once I was in my head, I like couldn't get it out because I started all, I was spending all my time just like thinking through that and I'd be at work and I'd be like, Oh, like, you know, this doesn't even matter. Like there's totally this other path I could go. Um, so I decided, I was like, okay, well, you know, I could give myself like a few years runway and I could get really deep into this. And, um, so I, you know, sold my place. I moved in with my mom and we put together a plan. I said like, okay, if I go the next like two to three years, I'm sure I can get this plan together in the next like, you know, year and get something like tangible put together. And then I can go after all this. And, you know, one day I just kind of decided, okay, I'm going to do it. And, uh, and then I did. And then, you know, the first like, you know, six months of it all was me just taking some time off and reconnecting with people and getting back in shape and getting my life back into balance. I think one thing I learned, um, the first like, you know, six years out of school when I was working really hard was that I don't, I don't want my life to fall out of balance. And I, I, I don't want to pick a career path that's going to make it so unless it's something that I truly, truly, truly believe in. Um, otherwise, it's just not worth the cost for me. And this is kind of the area where I think I'm going to figure out exactly what that balance is for me. But um, so yeah, just getting back into balance and reconnecting with people was was huge. And, uh, and my overall life just like felt so much more improved. I mean, I couldn't tell you how happy I was when I first made the decision. Um, but then it was kind of time to get to work. And then I was like, all right, buddy, like, let's figure out how to, how to piece this all together. And that was hard because I was trying to figure out, you know, 
I had this huge wall staring in front of me of like, you know, all these, this insurmountably high thing that I'm trying to go for back then. Um, and, and I had to put together did you, a plan. Did you know you were going to write a book when you were facing the school? No. Okay. No, no, no plan at all to write a book. That, right, that's right. probably one of the funniest things about the whole situation. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, I just, uh, I just knew that in the way that it ultimately evolved into a book was I broke down problems into things that I know I could benefit from immediately that I wouldn't regret spending time on in the future. Cause I was on like a time constraint here. So I really had to think about exactly how I was going to go about doing it and be thoughtful. And, um, so I started off like the first big thing that, that I wanted, I was like, okay, time to get really deep into Bitcoin. And I put together like a curriculum for myself on, you know, just hit, you know, economics, the history of economics, different financial readings, um, you know, all the different Bitcoin readings that I wanted to learn. Um, and, and back then there weren't as many, but I mean, there were more than I was actually aware of. I wasn't somebody actually, who was So like, when was this, Eric, roughly? So this was toward, this was like beginning of 2020, end of 2019. Okay. Yeah. Um, so when I, when I started doing that, you know, for, for on the Bitcoin pieces, it, it's kind of funny in hindsight, just like how much stuff that I'm aware of now in the industry that I wasn't even aware of back then when I first started off on all this. But, you know, I just kind of found the books that I'd encountered and, um, and I read them and I, you know, so that was like Bitcoin standard, um, mastering Bitcoin. Um, I had somebody recommend me a book that's never recommended that I think is actually really good. It was written back in, uh, I think it was 2014 by a group of Princeton professors. It's uh, Bitcoin and Cryptocurrency Technologies. Uh, one Princeton professor and then I think a group of other academics, but it's actually a great book. And I think it kind of frames things in a different way for people. Um, I read that and that was extremely helpful to me because um, they, they go into like the industry history a lot more in that too, which is nice. And then... Um, what was the title, sorry? Bitcoin and cryptocurrency technologies. Yeah, I've not had that either. Yeah, people don't talk about it very much, but I thought it, it's, it's a schlong. It's, it's a full textbook. So I think that's yeah. probably why. Um, nice. But but that, that was very helpful. Um, and then there, and then the, the kind of the final one in terms of like the Bitcoin content that I wanted to get into was, um, Jimmy songs, programming Bitcoin book. And that was a hard one because, you know, I came from a financial background. I didn't understand tech very well at all. Um, and so I was like, okay, if I want to get through this book, then I have to teach myself Python and, um, and that actually wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. I just got like a beginner book for super cheap and just taught myself. And then I jumped into Jamie Song's book, cranked that out in like a month and a half, I think. And then, uh, and then after that, that was pretty much just like a lot of economics reading, which was a lot more, you know, easier for me because I had a background and all that stuff. Um, and, and then there was kind of a certain point along the way, somewhere in that mix where I was like, okay, you know, you need it. You're going to have to like write all this stuff out. So I was just taking notes on all this stuff, making sure I understood it really well. I was like, no, you should put together like a series of writings and come together with a really core understanding of what you think about the industry. And, and that's, that's where like the whole idea around the book kind of started there. And I started putting together all these writings and I was just thinking through, um, you know, what I believed, what I didn't believe. And, and it's just, it's just such a good way to learn. You have to write things out because so quickly something that's clear in your head, the second you start writing. Well, I couldn't agree more on that. I, I write a newsletter every week and it's, it's just an excellent way to distill your own thoughts. And yep. if you can't write the, like I just, I take three bits of content I've consumed and I write like three short paragraphs about what I thought about it. And if you, like sometimes it just writes itself and other times right. it just doesn't. And it means you don't understand 
and you kind of have yep. to go back and it, it's funny it's as soon as I find this a lot. We'll dive back in. Um, but context makes such a difference, right? So as soon as you've got a subject that you're really actually interested in, then you study the shit out of it. And the best way to understand that is then to actually write an essay or write an article or write something about it. Because once you've done it, right. you then truly understand what you're thinking. Because otherwise yep. your thoughts are just all over the place, right? You're up in the right. ether and you're like, how do, I, how do I put this all in one place? And when you start putting it in one place, it doesn't make sense. But over time, you obviously manage to, eventually you write a book. <laughs> it's a right, right, yeah, that's, yeah, apparently that's where it leads. <laughs> like, <laughs> and yeah, that, that, that's exactly, I mean, that's, that's exactly what it is. I think that like anybody who's, whether you're trying to get into this industry or you know whatever it is that you're doing, um, if, if it's, if it has any sort of complexity towards it, or if you're trying to communicate and educate people on it, I think you gotta be writing it out. And maybe, maybe that writing never shows the light of day. Like even my, even in my general workflow that I do, if I'm going, if I have like an important meeting or something, then I write out my points. I'll like write out the meeting in my head. And, mm -hmm. um, and that's something that like sits on my computer. It never goes to anybody, but it just really helps me understand things. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, and that's, that's pretty much what it was. And I started writing and then really quickly into that, I was like, okay, I, well, I'll, I'll start with a couple essays and I started writing and then um, and I was like, okay, well maybe I created like this core body of work that really I believe in um, for what, you know, this industry is, why it's valuable and where it's going. And then getting into that, I was like, okay, there's so much I want to write here. This could effectively be a book. And then that, and then it popped up in my head and I was like, okay, well, that actually sounds like a pretty good way to start off in the industry. It's like, if you were one of the guys who wrote the book and, you know, I'd read some of the books and, you know, there's, there's great books in the industry, but I was like, there, there's so much room for all this. I was like, I, I've read all this stuff and I don't see anything that really like puts this all together in one place for somebody, particularly people with like my background and right. There's, there's all these different people coming to this industry from all these different areas and different narratives and different structures of information resonate with them differently. And for me, you know, being a financial guy, there definitely wasn't anything that sold me. I mean, the closest thing was like the Bitcoin standard, but that gets super theoretical. Like guys in finance just don't really give a shit about the theoretical stuff. Mm. Um, they, they want like, you know, here's a tangible value proposition. Here's hard facts. I don't really care about your opinion on things. Mm -hmm. um, walk me through the facts. And, and that's kind of what I wanted to focus on with my writing um, is, you know, I wanted to write the book that I wish I'd been given when I first started off on all this. Cause I had to go to all these far corners, find all these resources, teach myself all these different things when I wish I could have just been given my book. And then that probably could have gotten me up and running pretty quick. Not saying that the extra knowledge I gained from everything else I read wasn't incredibly valuable, but mm. um, at least as like a starting point, if I had my book, I try to like reference all the different sources that I use for knowledge. Mm. And yeah. It's very well resources. referenced. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it, cause like, that's what I wanted. I wanted to find a book that would really bring me to all the different areas so I could read my book and I get to the end and I could say, okay, this all makes a lot of sense to me now. I'm super interested. I want to go more in depth. I'm going to go read into all this other stuff. Yeah. Boom, boom, boom. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's, that's kind of what it was. And honestly, I think some of the success of the book in hindsight, you know, cause I wrote this thing and I was like, I don't, you know, I was very confident in my work, but I, I had no idea about book writing or, you know, being an author. It's classic. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Who knows, that, right? Yeah. It, it wasn't really my goal to like sell a lot of copies. That wasn't really the purpose. It was more, I did it for me. And I was like, and if, and if people find value in it, uh, then that's great. Um, but I kind of just more did it for me in a great way to like start and understand my thoughts. And I, you know, I went about it like, 
some, so some of my favorite books um, were books that like weren't very heavily marketed books. Those mm-hmm. were the kind of books that always attracted me. And I, you know, when, when I kind of had this thesis, I was like, ah, you know, I don't know if that's like the right way focusing on what you like necessarily, but mm. it was more just kind of did it for myself. I was like, okay, you know what? I don't really want to like market this thing very heavily or anything. I'm just going to put it out there and I'm going to talk about my thoughts and ideas online. And, you know, if, if people like it, then great. And, um, and that's kind of the goal. Like I, I, I didn't write it cause I wanted to be an author in the industry or like make money or anything. And, um, and then it was really cool. There's some like really smart guys. There's this guy, uh, one of the founders of, um, the, you know, WTF happened in 1971 website, heavily armed clown. He, his, uh, you know, a non account. He, um, he was the first guy to like reach out to me. And it was like, I was getting like debates with different people online about, you know, different Bitcoin topics on things. That's kind of like, I think how I first got, got noticed. And, um, and he noticed it and he like, I had like drafts of my book posted on my website for the first like two months before I published it. And I was just like trying to source feedback from different people on it. Mm. And he like read all of it. He like read my book of some random dude with like, I think I had 30 followers on Twitter or something and uh, read the whole thing. And he was just like, dude, this is awesome. You should come on my podcast. And I was like, sick, man. And like, he was like the first guy who kind of got me started. And then everything stepped from there. Um, but with the- uh, that, So I assume, Eric, that was like roughly mid-2020 when you released Yeah, it. this was, it was kind of like, I went live with things. Like I, I had this like draft version of all of it. And I was kind of, so I finished writing the book in February, 2020. And yep. then um, final draft. And then I like give it to an editor and- um, and go through a few iterations with him, had a great editor. I had a guy who was kind of had a background in like, you know, more of the Keynesian side of things, very liberal Mm. guy, rode, you know, bicycles in Vermont. And um, that's exactly who I wanted to like critique my book because, you know, talk about the alternative theories and, uh, and he was great. And, and then you go through a design process and everything. So like kind of when that whole process was going on, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to put these drafts up online and I'm going to source feedback. And I have my own personal network of, uh, you know, colleagues I used to work with and things like that. And I kind of got different demographics from different areas mm. that I thought would be, uh, the book could be beneficial to. And when you get their understanding from like people had high understanding of finance, people had a very low understanding of finance. Um, and, uh, and there was like a few for like the people in like the Bitcoin world that I had to take a look at it there i just like didn't know anybody in the industry yet so you know there's a few people who who helped me and like you know i I didn't ask them to like read the whole damn thing that's super time consuming um but i kind of you know i knew a little bit about them i asked them to like read a couple chapters and there's some guys that took a look at a few things for me which was nice um and uh and yeah so like going through that process was kind of how i first started to get myself out there and then i launched the book just before the bitcoin conference in june 2020 and um and i was just talking to a bunch of people at a conference time i wrote a book and then um, it was, uh, I, I saw, you know, BTC sessions at the conference. He was walking by me and I was like, Hey, what's up, man? Like I'm Eric, um, Jesse Berger. Jesse Berger is like one of the authors who I was talking to beforehand. He wrote the uh, magic internet money. Um, really, really good guy. Really awesome guy. And I was like, Hey, Jesse Berger told me I should talk to you. Um, I wrote this book and you know, yeah, just want to let you know that. And, and he was, uh, he just like stopped immediately. He was like, dude, I'll buy your book right now. And he like bought my book and uh, just like the nicest guy ever. And then, you know, conference ends. And then like a few weeks after that, he starts posting a bunch of pictures on Twitter of like, you know, my book and, mm. you know, all these excerpts from it. And he was kind of like blowing it up for me a bit. And then that's kind of how my initial following really started to accumulate. Wow. Um, and, uh, and then everything stemmed from there. Then it's like I, Bitcoin Magazine reached out to me. I got involved with them. And then, you know, conferences wanted me to come talk and then so on and so mm. forth. And then the biggest thing was back in February when Peter McCormack brought me on. And, mm. 
I've, yeah, I've that, watched that's that interview actually. Journey. It was great. Yeah, well done. Yeah, Peter's a man. I uh, it was the, appreciate that, man. Thanks. It was. Uh, you got your real Bedford yeah, shirt fun. on, which is great. I know, and it's funny because literally, I was opening the mail ten minutes before I hopped on this podcast, and it came through. <laughs> so I like, took my shirt off. I was like, "I'm wearing the Bedford shirt." <laughs> yeah, wear it. No, well done. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, Eric, what a story. I'm, um, yeah. I'm loving it. So I, I want to just jump in at this point and um, yep. say, first of all, say well done. Um, the, so how old are you now, if you don't mind me asking? 28. 28. Look at that. So, so yeah. you told me a story about your lacrosse coach, Don, 10 years ago saying, you're a dead shit. Like you went out and got pissed with your mates. Yeah. You're late at the game. You're A, on the bench, not playing. And B, I'm going to now rinse you in front of like all the friends and family that are here. And right. what a decade it's been. I mean, you've just taken me through, you know, so much of the way that you think about the world and what you did in order to get to today. And I mean, I frankly don't know many people who've written books as good as yours by the age of 28. Like it's epic. Um, there are sections of it that are really helpful and aren't part of other kind of the standard Bitcoin reading list to your point, which I really enjoyed. Um, like understanding cryptography better. So elliptic curves, I didn't understand that before. And it's it's quite a simple concept when you, you lay it out, but until you've actually gone and done the work, you, you, don't, you don't really understand, right? Um, something that to me is shining through here is a phrase you've, you've used a couple of times, which is like, I taught myself. And I think this is actually something that is very relevant to a lot of people in Bitcoin because there's no Bitcoin MBA, right? It doesn't exist. Right. You've got to go out, you've got to find all the content and you've got to consume it yourself and then you've got to work out what you think about it. And yep. one of the reasons that we're all getting together and talking about this subject is trying to find someone somewhere who says this actually won't work and here's a very good reason why. And even with all of the hours that all these people have put in, in fact, Bitcoin's getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And so the, the, yep. the kind of the the doomsday it's going to die and all the wealth you've got stored in it doesn't exist is is more and more unlikely as this process happens um but like i'd love to just hear a bit more about like just in retrospect think about don how did you feel on that day and like was that perhaps one of the best life lessons you've ever been taught like how did it make you feel and oh, yeah. this this process of like picking yourself up and saying okay I got to take responsibility for this myself. And this is actually very similar to the responsibility that a Bitcoiner takes when they self-custody their wealth. You know, you're actually taking responsibility for what's yours. If you lose this, it's gone. Um, but a lot of that mentality, I think, is present in, in lots of Bitcoiners. And actually, Bitcoin Sessions I interviewed yesterday, what a great story he has. And it's, it's very similar. You know, he was in education and he realized he could teach people. And that's why he started making YouTube videos because he was a visual learner. Um, yeah, so just step back to that day that Don's like rinsed you in front of all your mates. Like, how did you feel? <laughs> and what do you think you'd really learned from that? And is it, is it like just pick yourself up and get going? Like what, what characteristic did you build out of that process? I think, um, yeah, that's, that's a really good thing to hit on. I feel like, uh, you know, he cut me to my core. And, uh, and that doesn't really happen to me very often. That was probably like the first time I'd say, cause you know, when you're, I was just like this really cocky teenager. Right. And, um, and nobody could ever really get through to me cause I just like <laughs> didn't give a shit about anything. And, uh, 
and yeah, he he was like the first, it wasn't my parents. It wasn't, you know, any of my friends. It was him. He was like first guy that like really got through to me. And, um, and, and I, yeah, just, it really shook me to my core. It made me understand like the reality of who I was and, um, that I didn't really care about anything in life and that that affects other people. And, um, and that, you know, your life does matter to other people and the actions that you take do matter. And you, you know, you need to, you need to do things that are, that are good. And, um, otherwise you can end up being a pretty unhappy person. And, uh, and you know, that's, that's pretty much what it was. I think that if there's anything, you know, just thinking about it right now, if there's anything that I think I've noticed since that point, it's that people that I've always gravitated towards as mentors in like the business world, uh, primarily the business world have always been the bosses who would like, you know, rip into me because like, they're always the bosses who could really get me to anything that I'm very stubborn about. They're the ones who get through to me on it. Um, you know, I had, I had a boss, Carl at my first job out of college. And one of the things that I wasn't as focused on back then was attention to detail because it was in my head. I knew it. I don't need to like get it on paper. I don't need to like do all these iterations of something to like really make sure that it's perfect. Um, just wasn't natural in my personality. And, uh, you know, working for a job where you're producing information for other people and it's not about your understanding or yourself, he really quickly just started like ripping into me about my attention to detail. And like in that, and I can attribute a lot of the success of the book to his training in that because i uh I'm sorry just for context there eric so so you're working as a management consultant and your job is yeah. to supply information to someone that acts based on the information you supply and if you supply something incorrect or factually wrong or i don't know just explain that a little bit more like yeah basically totally. don't fuck it up because it matters right is, is that what you're right. trying to get across yeah exactly so like when we're we're looking at a deal right one of the big things was um you know, I did a lot of due diligence work for private equity firms. So if you're a private equity fund, you're looking to buy a company um, and you hire advisors to help you do that. And like they would hire us when they're looking at buying companies that were kind of going through challenges. Mm -hmm. So they bring us on and this private equity funds, you know, they're going to go spend, say, $800 million to buy this company. So small details have very large implications when we're talking about that mm -hmm. amount of money at that kind of mm -hmm. scale. And um and, and not only from that perspective, but you don't want to make your, your team look bad either. That's the other thing too. But um, so attention to detail is very important. So like we're, they're going to go look at that company where I'm going I'm to look at this company. I'm going to break down all the numbers of it. I'm going to look at its financials. We're going to come up with an analysis and say, here's what's good about the company. Here's what's bad about the company. And um, in every last detail of what you do matters. And if you don't, your reputation is eventually going to get hurt by that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'd go through this. I'd like the numbers would be right, but I wouldn't format it correctly or um, I wouldn't build it in a way that makes it easier for somebody else to understand and like all these mm -hmm. other things. And he was always like, no, like, you know, you you piece of shit. Like you need to get <laughs> dig into this man. And like, seriously, he would literally scream in my face sometimes. And I hated him when I first met him yeah. and uh, cause he would scream at me. But and then after a while, a few years later with like genuine respect. Exactly. Yeah. Literally. It's always guys like that. It's the guys, most of the people that I feel like I've gravitated towards as mentors have actually been people who I did not like when I first met them because they really pressed me on things. And guess what, Eric? They probably didn't like you either. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's exactly it. And we, uh, but eventually, like, you know, I realized, I was like, wow, this guy really gives a shit and, uh, and he yeah. really cares about me. He's trying to make me better. And, um, and, and, and that's pretty much what it was. So he was, uh, he, we, you know, I, I got really 
he made me um he made me deathly afraid of making mistakes and i still have that fear today so when i create things that i know i'm going to be distributing to other people that affect my reputation i'm i'm, I'm pretty afraid of being wrong about those things so mm. like when i'll i'll go re rewatch a podcast or something and i'll be like you misspoke about that that number was off by this much mm. um all these different things I, I i definitely have a fear of doing a lot of that stuff and uh, and it's very valuable and i can attribute a lot of the success to my of my book of that type of attention to detail and perfectionism i think that that really forced me to like i went through tons of iterations of it over and over again and uh because i really was just asking myself what would this look like if the entire world was reading it um and what would people think and of course you can't get to perfection but uh but I, I worked really hard on trying to get it to that point and i think that from the feedback i've gotten so far mm -hmm. i can definitely say that it's that tendency was one of the main factors in the success of it and, and what I like, Eric, is that, um, well, something I've learned that's okay, specifically through some experience, I had angel investing in startups about four or five years ago. Um, leveraging other people's work in order to make investments is totally and utterly allowed, which is not taught in school. Like in school, it's like, if you cheat by copying someone's work, you're in trouble. Um, and it's right. a, a skill that in a sense is self-taught. You go, you know, through the experience of sitting next to someone who knows what they're doing, they want to put their money into that startup for lots of reasons that I don't understand per se, but they're more experienced, have had success in the past, and therefore they're the smart money and they understand what they're doing. It's actually therefore relatively safer to make a bet alongside someone like that than it is just on your own trying to make it up yourself. Um, so when I hear you explain what you just did, basically having been through extremely rigorous analytical school, basically, you know, you're being paid for your time to analyze someone else's decisions for them. You cannot get it wrong. Therefore your level of um, uh, skill in that department is very high. And most people wouldn't have that. And therefore to write a book about Bitcoin that analyzes it with that same lens and come out with a positive review of it. Yes, there are some threats, but this is a game changer. You need to listen to this. That's actually something that I, as a, a Bitcoiner, can read and go, okay, this is interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm now even more convinced that this is a good idea. And I think that's the kind of um, characteristic that I find so interesting is everyone has different lenses, right? You, 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 you sat down 10 years ago, like, right, I want to get into private equity. How do I do that? And you self-taught yourself through university because university, in my experience anyway, is basically a whole lot of content that you basically have to teach yourself and then regurgitate in an exam to get the piece of paper to then get into the job that you thought you wanted. And you know, it's all this big kind of stepping stone process. Um, but that's, that's very cool to hear you explain that. Well, shout out to that, um, that previous boss of yours that forced you to think <laughs> like that, because that's obviously a skill set that you'll take on forever, right? Every time you now think about writing or creating a report or advising someone you have in the back of your mind, I cannot get this wrong because my reputation gets suffered long-term and it's kind of a process of thinking. Um, what I'd like to, to draw for, uh, draw toward next is, you, you know, you sat down, you, you, you sold your property, you moved in with your mum. It wasn't part of the plan, right? You know, you think back to your college days right. and, and what the plan was. Um, can you dig into a bit more as like why you thought that was the right thing to do? What did you feel at the time? And out of that has come a book, which, you know, to use a, a Bitcoin phrase is, as good a piece of proof of work as you can ask for, right? Is here's a bloke that basically no one knew anything about. He sat in his mum's house and wrote a fucking book. 
and it's actually brilliant because look at his background and why his analytical skills are actually very relevant to this um what, what do you think it was inside you that just made you take that step like oh mom oh. i'm moving in yeah um i you know i i i had a very large shift in um in my perspective on life um mm-hmm. i'd say from the age of like 24 to 25 and um i think that i i got to a point where i i realized that i wasn't happy doing what i was doing and i realized how much of a priority that needed to be and i, I i'm somebody who's never been very good at noticing those kind of things in myself so you know i i have a i would always set like a goal or a mission and i would go towards it i don't i don't think about you know how i felt about it or anything i would just say i'm going to go towards it and i think it was kind of getting towards my mid 20s i started to actually consider emotions because you know they're more of a emotions are a very strong feedback mechanism they allow us to calibrate towards what we're genuinely interested in and um and I think that like when it, when I got to that shift, um, I just, it, it kind of dawned on me that I didn't feel very purposeful at all in what I was doing. And, and that's what made me feel pretty unhappy about what I was currently doing. And then that's what started, you know, this huge, um, this huge search for purpose. And I think that for me to really get comfortable with a lot of that, it was more just, um, I think at a very personal level, I kind of got to a point in life where I just didn't really care about a lot of the things that I used to care about. You know, at some point when I was younger, I wanted to be somebody who was important, who drove a nice car that people looked up to and had a big house and an attractive wife and all these things, you know, that was something that when I was, you know, much more arrogant and younger in college, I was definitely, uh, you know, had in the back of my mind all the time. And, um, and then I got older and I kind of realized that I just didn't really care about any of those things. And then I said, okay, well, you don't care about those outcomes, but like, what about the job itself? And, um, and I was like, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, it wasn't that I hated it or anything. That's not the point I want to get across. There was a lot of things I really enjoyed about it. Um, but it wasn't something that really I felt purpose in. And, and I think what really hit me, um, and it, you know, here's the funny part because I hate saying this because there was a video that went big. I think it was sometime like a year or two ago. Um, but I came to this conclusion independently and then I saw it like six months or a year later pop up because Jeff Bezos was saying it. Um, but I, I started to think really far into my future and I started to think about what I'd be proud of um, when I'm older. And, uh, and I kind of got to this point where I'd be like, okay, well, I'm going to die one day. Um, I'm not a very religious person. So like my framework of thinking is that, um, you know, when I die, everything goes black. And um, so a lot of people, you know, say that that's not a very motivating thing, but I think it's kind of been the complete opposite to me. And that also, that exact same point, that could have been a big motivator to me too when I was going into college. Because um, I was right around the time, it was my freshman year of college, that I really kind of came to terms with my idea on creationism and religion. And I did a lot of reading and all that stuff. But anyways, um, I think that you know, to me, I was like, okay, well, a lot of people think it's like, oh, well, what's your purpose if we're just going to die? And to me, it's just like to be alive right now, to do what you want to do while you're here. And, um, and that was something that just kind of, I was getting older, you know, and I started to see that and I was like, okay, like, you know, this isn't it. What is it? And, um, 
And the last thing that really pushed me, so like once I got to that idea, it was Bezos. He, uh, yeah, going back, sorry, I, I skipped over, but like Jeff Bezos was in some sort of interview um, that I ended up seeing later on. And, uh, and he's talking about his like regret minimization framework for life. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what it is. I, it, when you're making really hard, scary decisions, I think if you go from the framework of saying, what am I not going to regret in the future? I told myself, you know, I don't love what I'm doing now. So obviously I want to do something else. And, um, and I think if I don't do this and I, you know, cling to safety and I, you know, am restrained by my fears that I will, um, that'll be something I deeply regret at some point in the future. And I felt regret in my life. And that's, a, that's a feeling that I don't want to feel again. That's probably the worst emotion I think anybody could feel because it drains on you and it stays with you. And, um, so that, that made it, that made me really think seriously about it. And I was like, you know what? No, this is something I need to do. And then what got me comfortable with like finally taking the final leap, I think was, um, I, I kind of got to a point in life where I like really like loved myself enough to where, uh, I, I was okay with the idea. I was like, you know what, if you take this leap and, um, and you know, and it all goes to shit and like, you know, you blow it. Um, I, I got comfortable with the idea. I was like, you know what, I'd actually be fine taking some sort of, you know, middle income job that gives me a good lifestyle where I can be healthy and have good relationships with people in my life. Um, and have good friends and have honest conversation. Um, I got really comfortable with that idea. I was like, you know what? I could fall back into something like that. I mean, technically I could fall back into my career if I actually wanted to, but at that point I really just didn't even want to go back into that world. Um, and I got comfortable with the idea of like worst case scenario, like I could, I, I, I'd be happy saying I tried and, you know, just going through life and still, I, I, you always got good friends. You can always laugh. You can always, um, you know, have experiences with people like life's pretty good regardless. And, uh, and then once I had that thought, I was like, yeah, let's, uh, fuck it. Let's do it. Fuck it. Let's do it. It's a great phrase. Yeah. I also like, um, what would my 60 year old self say? So just imagine yourself as a 60 year old and go, yeah. Well, and, and often when you're thinking about, should I, shouldn't I, you know, which one it is like, it's much more obvious because actually as a yep. 60 year old, you want to make sure that, you, you know, you took every opportunity that was there. You, you live by every, um, instinct or hunch that you had and you just went for it. And, and the final part of that being is like this concept of making failure your friend. Well, yeah, it sucks failing. Of course it does. Like it's a horrible process, but through that people obviously learn so much more perhaps than even the small successes they might gain from these. This is the theory, right? I mean, I've, I've tried to found businesses before that didn't work. I'm trying to like live that as a, as a concept. Um, and that's basically the, the, the kind of the moment that you had is what you're explaining. It's like, actually, if this fails, who cares? Um, and really the summary of it as well is, is, and I definitely had this, so I'm five years older than you, so not much at all really, but I remember very clearly as a 28 year old thinking like, is this it in the job I was working in at the time? And um, I resigned, I'd met my now wife, we went traveling and I took a different route and I enjoyed all that process. Um, nice. And Funny enough, I'm now back in that same industry because all the startups that I tried didn't work. So I've had to go mm -hmm. back in a sense just for now. Um, and you, you know, I don't regret any of that. Um, and, and it was that kind of thing of going, right. all right, do you know what? I've just got to scratch this itch. And you know, your resignation goes in and it's one of the most exciting days you've ever had. You're like, oh my God. And you yeah. spent like five years of your life working your nuts off to get to the position that you were in. And most people would have thought you were crazy. Like, what do you mean? What do you mean yeah. resigning? Are you, are you mad? And you're like, no, no, I'm fine. Thanks. 
Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's a very cool story, Eric. I love it. Um, so, so now just to turn a bit more towards the future. Um, thank you so much for sharing all of this with me. Uh, you, you don't have to mention necessarily the details of the project that you're worked in, but that you're, you're building. Um, but what's the future have in store for Mr. Eric Yakes? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I'm still, <laughs> I still don't even totally know. I think the, the, the way, okay. So here, this was a big adjustment for me coming from the guy who planned his whole career path, you know, for this like, you know, decade long period. When I first went into the whole entrepreneurship side of things, I was very, I felt very, very uncomfortable. And that was mm -hmm. one of the, you know, the big issues for me, which is a good and a bad thing. Um, but I, I learned, I think over like the first year of doing that, that rather than trying to structure and plan everything, um, maintaining a core set of principles that you hold on to, um, and taking advantage of opportunities as they come and having conversations with people that are interesting to you. And if I, if I kind of kept doing those things, a lot of good has come from that. And I think I just kind of want to keep doing that. So for, you know, I have some sort of plan. Um, I don't really know what it is. Like I have a very tiny Twitter following right now. Um, but I have some sort of plan. I don't know if it's like a podcast or some sort of media or whatever. Um, I'm going to do something in that direction at some point. I really like, like you and I having this conversation right now. Love doing this. This is so mm. much fun, especially fun, like, you, you know, and you're, yeah, and you're a great interviewer because you can really deep and have like the personal questions. And like, I, I think that you're, this is a great area for you. Thank you. You're doing a really good job. And, um, and like, I enjoy doing that too. And I like having real conversations with people. I like talking about philosophical things. Like, you know, I, I think similar to like your bent, um, probably something in that direction too, but I don't, I don't even know what it is yet. And kind of like how the book just was obvious to me when I started writing, I was like, Oh, there's a void in the industry. You need to do this anyways. You'll learn. It's not going to hurt you. Like do mm. that. Um, kind of waiting for something like that to pop up in that direction. Um, but I don't really know what it is yet. You know, I just want to, I want to, I want to have like really meaningful conversations with people. I want people to learn, um, from things that I say, and I want to learn from other people too. And, um, and, you know, and I want to make jokes and laugh and do all that good stuff too. And like, uh, just, just find a way to really do all the stuff that you enjoy normally in life and in a way that, you know, people enjoy as well. Um, so that's definitely part of it. Uh, but what, you know, one thing I kind of realized going into this, and this was something that I wasn't really certain of, you know, as, as I wasn't certain of a lot of things when I was first starting down this path, um, but I was like, okay, well, do you want to just do like a media thing or do you want to set up a business too? And like, there, there's a lot of skills I've gained on the business side of things that is something I also really enjoy. You know, I, I enjoy strategizing. I enjoy um, understanding markets. I enjoy um, understanding how different technologies work. I enjoy working with people. I enjoy leading teams, um, all that stuff I really love. And so I was like trying to figure out a way to make this all work. And um Really quickly after I wrote the book, I was like, okay, well, once I wrote the book, I was just looking at the industry. I was like, wow, there is, there are so many companies that need to be built and, yeah. uh, and there's so much different software that needs to be built. Right. Mm -hmm. There, there is just opportunities freaking everywhere. It's not, the ideas aren't the issue, you know? And, um, so I, I spent like six months really trying to refine what I thought about the industry. And at first mm. I was thinking like, okay, like financial services, some sort of software, you know, I, 
not exactly, but something similar like what Swan or like River or those guys are doing. Um, I saw a lot of value in doing that. And I thought that, you know, with the new wave in the industry, kind of like the high net worth market's not really addressed right now very well. So mm -hmm. that's that could be a potentially good area to go into. Um, and that's how I was first thinking. And then when I kind of got deeper into some of that and I started talking to different people and throwing ideas around with my mentors, the regulatory environment's pretty scary on that side of things. And, um, and I didn't really want to get into the game of playing all that. Um, and now what I'm doing now still needs to consider the regulatory environment, but it's not nearly to the same degree. I mean, I, I really respect what like river is doing. Um, they're spending like they're raising all this money and spending all this upfront capital to get money transmission licenses in like every state. And that's like so expensive to do. And there's a lot of uncertainty around that, how that could change. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's pretty badass. Um, but, uh, that, that scared me off from that market a bit. And I tried to think, look, you know, for really what I wanted to provide for people, um, more on the asset management side is probably a better way of doing it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's really kind of getting into that area and, um, you know, going after some of those markets. But really, it's just like the way I see it is I'm, I'm looking at it from the perspective. I'm, I'm starting a company that is something that I know is needed right now. Um, and, but my plan for the long term isn't necessarily just that there's so many different ways you can go. It's just like an open playing field in this industry mm. right now. Mm. And, um, my plan for the long term is, uh, you know, to really have everything I'm doing overlap as much as it possibly can. So I'm talking about the whole media side of things, mm -hmm. talking about a separate business. I want that to overlap a lot. And, and sorry, I kind of got off topic. The one thing that I realized too, when I was, you know, deciding, okay, I want to do both of these things was that one of the problems you see with people who are just doing media is that eventually you have to sell something. And, um, and I kind of just never really wanted to do that. I, I kind of want to just actually build a platform. I think like, you know, you know, from my perspective, I think like one of the most valuable things that you can get out of having some sort of following or having a media presence is trust. I think that's more important than generating money. And like, if you have a way to make money, then you can, you know, focus the whole media thing on just generating trust. And I think that like, that's the most valuable currency when it comes well, to Well, and actually, media. Eric, if I could jump in there, that gets right yeah. to the root issue that I think we see in a lot of mainstream media. <clears throat> I have a friend here in Australia. He works for one of the big broadcasting companies. And he's explained to me the dynamics. He actually works in the advertising team. So one of the leading supermarkets here is his biggest customer. And they pay him to advertise on their channel. And the news desk is supposedly not affected by the advertising relationship. And they supposedly have complete autonomy to do stories as they want. And let's say a story comes out in which this supermarket is talking about underpaying staff or they haven't done overtime correctly or some kind of negative twist. And yep. more recently, it's been about these ridiculous vaccination mandates. You can go into a store unvaccinated and buy something, but you can't work there. And there's this big legal disputes going on in Australia about this stuff at the moment. Um, point being, the news desk is supposedly autonomous to the, the advertising desk. But that's right. just absolute bullshit because... Who's yeah. the customer for that broadcasting company? The customer is the supermarket. They are paying the bills, yep. not the punters at home watching the free to view news channel. So even yep. though they say that that's the case, it's bollocks, right? It, it, it can't right. possibly be true that they actually send out every story that they hear that's negative about said customer. So to your point, exactly. I, I, I genuinely agree. And, and this actually comes around to the, a wider subject that I'm actually writing an article about at the moment but like financing ideas has changed forever because you can 
let's say I say to you, right, Eric, let's start a media business together. We're going to finance it with one Bitcoin. Okay. In four years time, much like Peter McCormack's real Bedford concept, you've got a deflationary asset on the, on the balance sheet that might 10 X from today. You don't need sponsors. You don't need advertising right. revenue from the supermarket to go out and have a team of journalists or a team of people creating media content. The financing models just basically changing right in front of us right now. And as you say, there's opportunities everywhere. Um, sorry to slightly hijack that, but I'm passionate about it as well. Not at all, man. No, it's, I, I it's, completely, it's, yeah. It's a great insight. It's like, okay, could I, effectively you're saying, can I somehow finance my media ambitions or you know, my potential to educate people for free with another business model or whatever that might be um, able to do that? It's a, great, it's a great shout. I think it's possible. Of course it is. Yeah, and it, it, it's it, it's not as much like, like yeah, finance would be the right word, but it's more like if you, um, you know, something I've always found is that people who I think are really exceptional in certain areas are typically people who are doing a lot of different things, and there's because the overlap from the two areas has like is is incredibly synergistic, mm-hmm. um, and like 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 Elon Musk would be the perfect example of that. You know, he does all of these different things. He's in all of these different areas and all these different creative ideas that have emerged through like the businesses he's built over the years. And it's, it's people like that. Like, you know, something my dad used to always say growing up is, you know, you want to play multiple sports. You don't want to just play one sport and you end up being better at both sports. If you play multiple sports, because a lot of what you learn in one sport transitions over to the other. And the people who are singularly focused on one thing, they don't get that. Um, and as long as there's a lot of overlap between the areas, obviously, but I, I, I think it's really important to be uh, to be doing a bunch of different things that you care about and finding ways for it to all sync up. And, um, and that's exactly it. So like it's, I don't want to, I think the best media businesses are ones where you don't need to make money off of them. And that really allows you to have the comfort to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to say what I want to say. And, um, and it's more about just like being honest with the world and whether or not you like me or you disagree with me, you still trust me because you know, I'm not going to lie to you. And like, and that's kind of what I would really care about the most. And then having something else and being involved in another area that also you're learning about a lot of the things that are to be valuable to the people you're creating media for. That's another great thing. But the whole idea of like, when it gets into media, the whole idea of like selling and stuff to your point, like there's a conflict of interest between, you know, the consumers of the content, the publishers of the content, and then the financers of the content. Correct. And like, that's the whole issue with the social media model. And, yeah. um, and that's what people are trying to like solve from like the decentralization perspective and make it yeah. like a more user financed model. Um, and ho- hopefully we get there on some of that. Cause like that, that makes a lot more sense. It's like, if you do like the whole idea of getting like a super follow on Twitter, it's like, I probably will never do that. But, uh, but like, it makes a lot more sense. It's like, if your followers actually want to pay you, for something yep. more, more access or something like, yeah, that, that makes a lot more sense. I mean, you're yep. still going to be saying the same things. Um, but at the end of the day, like, <laughs> you know, you do think about it. And I was like, I was like talking to my mom about this at one point. She was like, so you wouldn't want anybody to like sponsor you? I was like, oh, well, like stuff that I really like, like, you know, I cook barbecue <laughs> on a big green egg all the time. I was like, yeah. they want to sponsor me like, that'd be cool. I love green yeah. egg. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, and that's the yeah, problem as well. Uh, so we're all, we're all like slightly biased, right? You know, we'll be like, right, exactly. oh, that's a cool brand that even though I'm not supposed to think like this, it has actually like 
coerce me over time and even when i'm looking right. at the real bedford shirt like casa and compass mining that are mentioned gemini you know have i yeah. done any business with any of those companies i've never used them as a user no but like weirdly i kind of like the name because i've you know learned so much from peter mccormack's podcast right. and you know before you know it you're you're buying a certain type of trainer or like you know i wear glasses so like a branded glasses or whatever um right and and actually it's the same friend that works at this broadcasting company shout out to belly if he ever listens um who said the best form of advertising is when people don't know they're being sold to and you think right. okay and, and and that's where it's all you know it's very difficult to decipher what's going on in the world um so eric i'd love to just touch on quickly uh, i'm intrigued so when i was um working as a startup founder i got through um a couple of effectively elite programs but they were they're called talent investment programs and they put 100 people in a room together they pay them to go there's 50 percent technical 50 percent non-technical and we've got eight weeks to come up with a billion dollar idea with someone with complementary skill sets and if they like it they'll then put 100 grand into the idea you've then got 12 months of runway and they've got a whole yep. network of vcs etc 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 it's been a very successful kind of iteration of the vc model um in recent years the the process that they taught us was a very rigorous customer discovery process so if you're going to solve a problem for someone you need to know that that problem is extremely acute and they're going to pay you for it and solving a problem mm -hmm. that isn't really 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 bad is actually not going to generate enough traction and enough money in the short term to justify a developer team etc etc at least that's right. the theory um in your experience of the last, let's say, 18 months since you released the book, you've obviously got a very business-minded yep. mindset. Um, where are the biggest problems in the Bitcoin space? And, and this is where opportunity abounds, right? Because you're just like, hang on, that doesn't work properly, that doesn't work properly, that doesn't work properly. All of these products exist elsewhere, whether they be insurance, whether they be stock markets, whether they be you know, leverage, whatever, that actually aren't that easy on a Bitcoin standard today whereas they might be in right. five, 10 years time. So yeah, has anything been like particularly stand out to you that you think are interesting problems that drastically need solving? Certainly. Um, I think that the way I'll, it's just, it's a huge question. So I'm thinking about how I should frame it. Um, I, I, I think I'll start with the first thing that was very, very apparent to me, and there's, there's other things, you know, that a lot of other people focus on in terms of like user experience and applications and all of that. that that's obviously there's tons of opportunity there because until, you know, my grandma can use Bitcoin without knowing it, that that's not there yet. And, um, but the first thing that really popped out to me was on the financial side. And like, you know, my vision for all of this is if Bitcoin is going to be this base layer form of money, then we're, you know, need payment systems on top of that. And we need applications that utilize those payment systems and lightning and strike. Um, so like that's getting built out and that's huge because once we have a base layer money for settlement and once we have, you know, a, a networked out, uh, you know, a whole expanded network of payment systems that are actually being adopted, that's when this, this thing's endless. And um, so that's where we're at right now, but financial systems are much more complicated than that. So you have base layer money, you have payment systems, then you have a whole ecosystem of financial products and services that exist on top of that, that help people move value across time, space, and scales in a bunch of different ways for a bunch of different reasons. So we have, you know, debt, we have lending, we have borrowing, we have insurance, we have 
a bunch of different types of securities that are used in different ways. Um, some of those are standardized. Some of those are securities that are being, you know, traded in public markets. Other things are just contracts that are being structured by different service providers for specific reasons. Um, and there's this massive ecosystem and like those are huge, huge markets and all of that needs to be replicated on top of Bitcoin. Mm. So, you know, where I see this industry going is we have the payment layer set up and then eventually we're going to have, you know, we see like side chains like liquid where they're issuing debt on it now. So that's probably like our first big example of, you know, securities. Um, but eventually we're going to have stock markets and we're going to have, you know, debt contracts. And we're going to have indices and um, all these different things are going to exist purely within this ecosystem on these new payment rails. Um, now, when all, those are like the products side of things. Um, for those products to exist, there's going to be, you know, applications and software that's going to be innovative, I think, in this in these areas and um, and make that all pretty streamlined. And that's what like a lot of these altcoin ecosystems are attempting to do. And like, you know, staying staying away from like that side of the debate. Um, the point is, is that whether it's a centralized service provider or whether it's, you know, a decentralized provider that's lying about whether or not it's actually centralized. Um, or whether we do get to a point where we can actually find uh, meaningful ways to have some degree of decentralization in certain forms of software to facilitate that. I don't really know the answers to all that yet, um, but I do think that it's gonna be a spectrum of different service providers that are providing different, you know, different things to different areas. And, um, and I think what's gonna be really, really valuable are companies that can really bridge the gap well, because we're kind of at this adolescent stage and we're awkward, like our legs are long, our arms are long, but like our shoulders aren't wide yet. We can't really run that fast. And, you know, there's all these things that are building out disproportionately. So you need service providers, I think, that are still um, can bridge the gap between moving people from the traditional financial world into the new digital world. And, um, so you want to be playing both sides of the field for a period of time and you can help people with the adoption. You can hold their hands and you can bring them into the new ecosystem. And then you can also, while you're getting people involved in the industry with like traditional infrastructure, you can take that and invest that organic revenue into building out different, um, you know, infrastructure that is going to be supporting them as a service provider in this new ecosystem. So I think like when you talk about things like asset management, I think that's going to be a huge innovative area. Um, so, you know, providers who are totally specialized in asset management within this ecosystem and know how it works and know where the risks are and know how to structure their product offerings so that they can support people purely within this ecosystem. Um, that's pretty much where I ended up getting really focused on. And that's what I'm working on right now. And, um, and I, I just, I think that there's going to be a world where, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think uh, I just wrote a piece on this. It's going to go in like the actual Bitcoin magazine, uh, their, their next magazine, um, uh, the printed version that they send out. Um, and I, I called it like the financialization of Bitcoin. And I think the big trade-off in this area that we're witnessing, and it's a big experiment that we need to figure out right now, is there's this, uh, there's this balance that is going to be found um, or, or it's not. Um, we're going to, we're going to find out, but there's a balance that needs to be found between self-sovereign ownership of Bitcoin without any financial service providers and everybody being able to do that and always having access to being able to do that. And then the necessary financialization of Bitcoin that's also going to occur because let's face it in the future, you're not going to have a major company that's going to, you know, have a guy who's the self-sovereign owner of their Bitcoin. You know, you're going to have specialized service providers that do these things. So like institutions have very different interests 
than individuals. So like there's going to be financialization for those kind of things. If you think about like a high net worth client, um, you know, these people aren't really focused on those things. And, um, and they're much more, they have people who manage pretty much everything in their life because their time is valuable. Think about like a highly successful doctor. I mean, they, who's somebody who's like invented a cure for something. They travel the world. They have time to do what they're really good at. They don't have time to worry about all this stuff. And maybe in 30 years, it'll be, they'll be educated from, you know, when they're two years old to learn how to do this stuff. So they will be able to, um, or it'll be automated enough to where they can actually depend on those things. But Regardless, there's still going to be intermediaries in some form. Think of like multi-sig and having a third party hold your keys for you. You know, like there's a ton of different examples of how all these things can work out, but there's going to be a necessary financialization. And there's a lot of people I think who think that the world's just going to be like, everybody owns their own Bitcoin and everybody knows how to use it. And you know, maybe that's true in a century. I, I don't really know, but for a very long time, it's not going to work like that. Um, and so I think that there's this balance that needs to be struck because with the risk of financialization is that people ultimately own Bitcoin, but they don't own actual Bitcoin. They own a security that entitles them to Bitcoin. And, um, and it was uh, Ben Hunt of like Epsilon Theory wrote a great piece on this a year ago, you know, Bitcoin TM, Bitcoin trademarked. Um, and, and he refers to this concept. He's like, no, like Wall Street, and, you know, regulators, they're not going to attack it. They they want to adopt it. They're not, and they're going to get control over it, and they're going to wrap it in the security, and they're going to sell you Bitcoin TM, and it's going to have. I think his quote was, um, "All the same revolutionary potential of a bumper sticker." And I was yeah. like, "And that's and that's absolutely true." You know, <laughs> that's um, that's a really really important point. So the point is, um, I think for the way that I see this industry is that we need to have a large proportion of Bitcoin that is self sovereign. It needs to be a large proportion. It doesn't need to be 100%, but it needs to be enough of a proportion so that regulators and financial service providers are scared to ever screw people over. That's pretty much how it works. Because as long as people can always opt back into a self-sovereign system, mm. then that takes the power away from everybody else. Yeah, so the competitive so the edge is, keeps them in check, essentially, doesn't it? Yeah. Exactly. It's a, it's a competitive edge that keeps them in check. Rather um, than, like, you know, oops, sorry, guys, can't pay the bills. Just going to print a shitload of money. You know, it's, exactly. it's like the complete opposite end of the scale, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Nice. Yeah. And uh, so I think the question is, is what proportion is that? And I don't have an answer to what that is, mm. but I think it's actually a lot smaller. My guess would be it's a lot smaller than what people think. I'd assume if, you know, say the world had, you know, say 30% of its assets in like a self-sovereign form, that's mm. a huge chunk of wealth. So if yeah. shit hits the fan in the financial world, people are going to have a lot of wealth and they can, you know, opt out of these service providers pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be some sort of balance between these two things that needs to occur. And then the key ingredient for all of that is going to be at the application level, which I'm not smart enough to speak to, but mm -hmm. the application level where people can find ways to have these financial services and be self-sovereign. So mm -hmm. like I'm, I'm involved in like the beta for atomic finance. And I was going to mention example. them. Yeah. They're, they're, they're a great example of that. And, um, and I, I am hoping that at some point in the next couple of years that I can get their technology involved with what I'm doing for my company, which kind of okay. brings me all the way back to my point. Um, I think that financial service providers, if like you're somebody listening and you're a financial plan to be a financial service provider in this industry, I think a key thing that needs to happen is that for whatever you're doing, you need to be educating people on self-sovereignty 
and you need to be finding ways to support their self-sovereignty. And it is a little bit of an altruistic thing, right? But if you could structure your company in a way that provides you incentives to make them self-sovereign, I think that that's really beneficial to the ecosystem in the long term. And um, in me getting into the financial side of things and being well aware of how you know the, the industry that I'll be part of is something that can really take away from the ethos of Bitcoin, I want to make sure that I'm doing things to counteract that. Um, and and yeah, that's kind of how I view it. Well, it's a, it's a, well, it's a lovely conversation. I'm loving it. The, 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 the opportunities are, are, are endless and where it's going to take endless. us, we don't know. Um, but I guess just to draw back to one of the, the comments I made, we're teaching ourselves, right? We will work it out. Yep. And that's just the nature of humans. We're, we're, we're posed a, a challenge here. There's a system that's clearly disintegrating on itself and we've got a new opportunity to build something else. And with that comes entrepreneurship and with that becomes, you know, capital requirements and with that becomes the potential to, you know, improve customers' lives, to improve people's, um, you know, standard of living, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it's very, very exciting. Um, Eric, listen, an hour and a half has flown by. Thank you so much for your time. Um, the last comments yeah anything to to wrap up you want to mention and uh, and where can people get hold of you if they want to get in touch yeah um dude this was this was an awesome conversation um i i totally enjoyed it and i think like the bent and focusing on like background and all that stuff i, I think it's really enjoyable and i definitely think it's something that um people don't focus enough on um something that i've always been gravitated towards and um yeah it, it was an awesome conversation um and you know anything's you know anything i want to say is just uh you know i i don't have all the time in the world so it's it, it's always hard but i always encourage people um you know people reach out to me on twitter a lot and um and you know i'll, I'll end up have, meeting some great people from doing that having great conversations like if anything i say really impacts you in some sort of way and you want to reach out like please reach out I, I love meeting new people um i try i try to be as um you know open and communicate with as many people as i possibly can um but for particularly people who are like really genuinely interested in stuff that i've said um that that I, typically leads to like really cool relationships so like please reach out um, i'm on twitter at eric e-r-i-c-y-a-k-e-s and um and yeah that's it well and i'll post that in the show notes as well well eric thank you so much for joining today really appreciate it yeah thanks a lot jake it was a blast pleasure